Welcome back, listeners, to a new episode of The New Standard. And as always, I have my partner in crime to my left, Neil Kulong. What's up, Neil? Lance, you know, I'm uh, I'm good. I'm here still in the frozen north, um, surviving winter as best you can. Pre-Super Bowl weekend, always a good time. Oh, yeah, and that whole Valentine's Day thing that uh, I'm sure we have to do something about. But um, not before the Super Bowl, for the most part. We're excited for that, even if the hated Cincinnati Bengals are representing the AFC. All stuff yeah. we're going to get into, right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not one of those fans that are like, uh, yeah, well, at least it's the AFC North representing in the Super Bowl. They're the Bungles forever. I hate And I'm yeah. never, you know, I'm like never happy. I the, the division. Why would I want them to be represented? Exactly, exactly. There's only one yeah, exactly. team that represents that division as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, with that being said, before we jump into the show and the show notes, want to welcome everybody that's joining us on the live chat. want to welcome everybody that listens to the podcast. And there are a variety of ways to do that. You can listen to the podcast, of course, going to your favorite podcast reader or feeder and do a search for The New Standard and Neil Kulong or Lance Williams. Or you can join us on YouTube Live. And a little bit of show business, we are changing when we are going to do the live YouTube show, we are going to do it on Saturday mornings at this time. So you can relax, get your coffee, and join Neil and myself. We are a little bit older, so we wanted to uh, shift to the weekends because <laughs> the weeks are uh, very hectic and very busy. So that's the show note, little show business. We have a scheduling change. Uh, but before we hop into the show, Neil, uh, what's your favorite Super Bowl snack. And do you have a favorite Super Bowl commercial? Um, Super Bowl snack. To be honest with you, I, I've, I've had this conversation recently. I'm kind of a, a, a dip fan. Some type of, uh-huh. of cheese-based dip. Um, on top of that, I am a huge Dorito slut. I'll, I'll eat Doritos pretty much <laughs> 24-7 if I have the opportunity to do that. Um I fancy myself something of a junk food gourmet as well. Uh, give me a crock Chewy pot, candy? Chewy hunk candy? of cheese. I not not as much. I'm I'm definitely more of a a, a savory over sweet sort of guy. But um, okay. baked desserts, absolutely. Uh, candy in and of itself, not a whole lot. Um, give me tortilla chips and some type of cheese dip and buffalo wings. I would go for that all day. For me, when it comes to Super Bowl snacks, you probably hit it for me. I like wings. I could probably eat wings every day of the year. And, of course, being from Pittsburgh, I like my wings dry. You know, I just like them fried hard. And I'll take the wing and dip it in whatever sauce that I oh, want. Yeah. No. You know, I used to get you know, I used to get wings from a place called Nats um, in the Strip. If you got any uh, old school Pittsburgh guys listening to the show, they, they, they know Nats. Nats was a nice little watering hole in the strip where you could get Miller High Life for like a dollar fifty and you can get about <laughs> 10 wings for about seven bucks and just enjoy yourself all day. In terms of Super Bowl commercial, I can't think of any that jump out. I mean I'm sure we'll think of Super there's Bowl commercials. There's a bunch. I mean it, 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 the first one that would come to me it Bud Bowl. Bud Bowl was a, a staple okay. of my youth, my generation. Uh, we really got into the Bud Bowl, the, the running game within the game. Um, definitely a, a, a massive marketing success, and there are, there are always really good commercials, but they're commercials. You know, you, you don't uh, you don't really remember them um, beyond that particular moment. And I, I know there's there's always a lot that I really enjoy. Um, I am absolutely not somebody who watches them intently. They just happen to be on. I'm there for the game. I like the game. Um, I, I'll, I'll enjoy it. I don't make a big thing of it, but yeah, they're, they're always, you know, they, they put a lot of money into it. They're very clever. Um, that part of it is enjoyable. I see why people get into it. It's not just me though. Now, now I will full disclosure on a pet peeve I have with dips. You know, I don't like, uh, I do like cream based dips, but I don't like cream based dips with a lot of people at parties because of dirty phalanges. Ekkali, <laughs> I, I don't like ekkali. Are people uh, you're going to parties with dipping their fingers in the dip? I mean, it's meant to have like a chip or bread man, or something. No, no. Here it is. It's like people the heathens dip. you're hanging out with. Yeah, and people double dip. You know, people start drinking drinks. They get their fingers in it. They, you know, 
people just have they fumble on the dip. So you know, I like uh, well, you know, I I just spoon up some in a bowl. If I'm making it, you put paper bowls alongside it. You got a nice dipping spoon. They they put some into the the bowl. You don't have you double dip then if you want. You don't do it into the into the main trough. Well, well, let let let's jump into the show because Neil just people? proved. Neil just proved that he's not really from Pittsburgh because that is <laughs> that's civilized. That's the civilized way to do it. So I'm just disappointed now because people are proved, elbow deep into the dip. He's not exactly. He's not <laughs> from Pittsburgh because he said dip into a side bowl. Like, okay. Anyway, but sorry. The big news of the week in the Steelers lore or in Steelers land, and we'll talk about both is one. The hiring of Terrell Austin, I think that was a, I mean, I think we all knew that that was going to happen. Um, it just took a little bit of time for whatever reason. And T.J. Watt winning Defensive Player of the Year. I think similar to Terrell Austin being hired, I think everybody knew that T.J. Watt was going to win Defensive Player of the Year once he tied the sack record. Give me your thoughts on, on the Austin hire. And, and from this perspective, what do you think the role of the defensive coordinator is in Pittsburgh? Because I think we all acknowledge, because it came out a couple of weeks ago, that Tomlin has heavy fingerprints on this defense. He's the he, he's the primary defensive play caller, as it's being alleged. Uh, so, so what's the role of the D.C. for the Steelers when um, you have a, a, a head coach that is so uh, ingrained in the process? Yeah, let's let's just first um, when we get into this, we're going to operate under the assumption that it, Mike Tomlin is it, it just our vernacular here, Lance. Mike Tomlin is calling most of the defensive plays. OK, let's just accept that that's probably what's going on. They're going to be very cagey about it. They're going to dance around the issue. Let's just say that, that Mike Tomlin is the one calling it. Um, it. it in doing that, we also need to point out that this is not rare in the NFL in any way, shape, or form. I would estimate half of coordinators in the game are not calling plays. What that's really emphasizing, and this isn't something that seems to be common knowledge, a coordinator's job is not solely to call plays. Coordinator's job is putting the entire side of the ball together under organization, under structure. Mapping that structure out, which is heavily based in terminology, in communication, that's really what a coordinator is doing. Uh, when you have a situation where really what the Steelers have had since Cower, um, their system, their structure of defense is being generally put together by the same people year in and year out. Whatever changes that they would make are, are going to be probably stuff that they want to go they want to do directionally and they're not in a situation where they're looking to overhaul their personnel their alignment all these things are they're already doing what they're doing you know it, it's tough it, since tj watt's name came up it, it's tough to make him better um he's right. going to work to get better they're going to scheme him up to be better than he was but you got a pretty good sense of what you're going to get out of TJ Watt at its high end right now. Now, to be fair, he's gotten votes for defensive player for the last defensive player of the year, the last three years, um, which oddly enough puts him in the same stratosphere as Aaron Donald, the guy that he beat out this year. And um, his brother, JJ Watt, uh, Khalil Mack might have done that. Not many guys have done it. The point is your, your coordinator is aware of who TJ Watt is and he understands He's getting the money to, to receive the accolades that he's getting. So you're talking about the continuity from one year to the next. Mike Tomlin might be the guy calling plays. Um, nobody draws all that up by themselves. Somebody is in charge of uh, taking the vision that the head coach has, not just Mike Tomlin. This, this goes anywhere. It doesn't matter if a, an offensive-minded coach, Nathaniel Hackett, just hired by the Broncos, He's worked on the offensive side of the ball. He's still responsible for the defense. They're going to hire a defensive coordinator who can call, draw up, do whatever uh, on defense the way Hackett wants it to be done. So new coach, new coordinator in Denver, they're overhauling what they're doing. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, 
all it, that is still under the responsibility of Hackett, not the defensive coordinator reporting straight to the general manager. It doesn't work that way. Tomlin oversees both sides of the ball. He calls plays in our, our scenario, what we're going to agree upon. He's calling the plays on defense. He's still overseeing all of it. So Austin and Canada both report to Mike Tomlin. Mike Tomlin is overseeing how they are drawing things up based on what Tomlin ultimately wants to do versus the opponent. Austin is in an advantageous position in that he is familiar with what they do. He's familiar with the personnel. So whatever tweaks they have is, is not going to be Terrell Austin sitting in a room by himself for two weeks while Mike Tomlin's on vacation and they come back to, to run, I don't know, a, a, a five, two stack defense. They, they don't, it's not done like that. They're coming up with uh, personnel groupings, sub packages more than anything else. I would imagine part of Austin's appeal uh, back when he was hired in 2018 was his ideas of what to do uh, with a secondary that was going to have to expand. They were going to need uh, more defensive backs on the field. They were going to need more versatility from their safeties. They brought in somebody with good ideas and good experience with that, which in my opinion, Austin's done a great job um, over the last couple yeah, of years. Yeah. And it made perfect sense why he was going to be their defensive coordinator. I think we, we knew that that was going to happen. So he is going to customize a defense based on the personnel that they have, weigh in on uh, pending free agents, weigh in on league free agents, weigh in on draft candidates. Uh, they, they scout all of these things. They look at all these things, take their notes, uh, recommend what they think should happen to their particular grouping, probably work with. Um, it, I, I don't think they're going to make a change with their linebackers coach. Um, I forget the outside linebackers names. It's a Perryman and uh, Denzel Perryman, I think is the, the, the outside linebackers coach. Um, Jerry Olsofsky is still in his job. As far as I know, with the inside linebackers it sounds there like they'll go. remain. Um, <clears throat> so it, Austin's going to go over with them what he sees from these groups based on what Tomlin kind of wants to do. They're all going to contribute to it. Austin's the guy that's putting all of that together. And if Mike Tomlin is the one calling plays, that's fine. But the play calling job means nothing until September. So they've got a lot of work they need to do on a unit that was great at times and terrible at times. Um, a lot of things that they need to do, and it's really going to focus on personnel right away. So Austin is, uh, like the other defensive assistants, going to weigh in on that side of the ball, uh, players that they want to keep, players that they should get rid of, players that they want to add, players or positions they should address in the draft, all that stuff. Um, it's done through film work. It's done, done through vision and organization of how they want to proceed defensively in the future. Yeah, you were right. Denzel Martin is the assistant Martin, outside line, linebackers coach. Secondary coach is, is Grady Brown. Defensive line back defensive line coaches Carl Dunbar and Jerry O uh is the inside linebackers coach. I was reading an article in, in reference to uh Mike Tomlin calling plays uh, on the athletic by uh Hall of Famer. I think he's a Hall of Famer, Ed Bouchette, or Ed, a Hall of Fame both. voter, or he might be a Hall of Famer. Both. I'm not sure. He's both. Uh, he's both. Okay. And so, you know, one thing he said was, you know, his preference would be to delineate play calling to the defensive coordinator. Let me ask you, from your experience in, in being around the Steelers and other organizations, is it how much does calling plays on game day interfere with or make more difficult the other stuff that the head coach has to do? That I feel in in sort of a, a, a catch twenty two way. That depends on how good and how well organized your head coach is. Um, okay. Doing a good job of that includes having good assistants who are well-prepared and are able to execute on their own the things that they need to do to be ready to handle all of that. I would imagine, I haven't read Ed's article. Ed's a great guy. I, I really appreciate the help that Ed's given me in my career, not to, to knock him in any way, but my guess is going to be what he's going to say is Tomlin loses a lot of challenges. He doesn't challenge the right things. He mismanages the clock. It, it's simple to say he has so much focus on calling plays defensively, he can't do those other things. It's not it, It's not as simple as that. It, it, clock management, we, we can get into that in another show. 
the idea is uh, his fo- Tomlin's focus is on the game that's unfolding to him. So the idea that Tomlin's calling plays means he's pretty well dialed in to what's going on on the field. He should be more aware of it, in fact, if he has to, to go to that level of detail and understanding of what's appearing in front of him. If there is something else that he is you know, it pulled into, which I, I'm making more out of this than it really is, um, you have a defensive coordinator. You have assistant coaches. Those things are done right. at that level. Um, I've seen this. I'll, I'll share this story. I, I, I worked on a sideline um, of a Vikings game one of the last ones that I had done, uh, Sean Payton was the the Saints coach. And this wasn't a, a regular season game, but Sean Payton um, was new. And he took a, 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 a certain, took certain uh, liberties to address the failure of a player on the field. And I was holding the, his mic cord and I was close enough to him. Um, he was inventing profanity it, it was remarkable he dealt with profanity the way that some artists deal in clay or oils he, he really knew how to express his frustration without raising like his voice a to Christmas a, a ridiculous level like, yeah exactly like that's why like the dad on a christmas story yes he um it, it, the, the the point of this was uh that this this backup fullback got a, a, i think he got like a holding penalty or something to that regard and Peyton uh, first addressed the player generally in kind of a way, making sure everyone around him knew that he said it. And then he went into his headset and you, you adjust the mic. You can kind of tell when he was talking to somebody on the headset or not. And he, I, I assume he's addressing the position coach. And he said just very calmly, very straight mannered, that mother effing SOB has gotten two penalties in the last three games pause i just wanted you to know that and it very much sarcastic you need to fix this right now uh it wasn't long after that you saw the position coach come over and he's tearing a strip into the guy and the, the guy's arguing back with him too it was quite the sight I, I i had to you know continue doing what i was doing but i wanted to see if they were going to start you know throwing punches at each other or something but it it, it gets pretty heated and a, a head coach in those situations knows um how to handle chaos and that that's i think the best way to describe right an nfl sideline there is a lot that's going on and it, it does make sense on the outside of it to say how can one person manage all this the main thing that you need to understand is there are dozens of people doing dozens of things at once one person right. couldn't control all of it his job is to delegate that responsibility at the same time with football there is a level of micromanagement that occurs and it's more or less the head coach giving a general direction and it's up to the other people to um, kind of follow suit with what he said. So in other words, put it like this, if it's Mike Tomlin on the sideline, looking at the situation, they've prepared all week uh, statistically, analytically, they know when they feel they have an advantage in whatever situation and it's up to coach usually to, to make a call. Um, let's say it's, you know, second and 10, uh, the next Steelers quarterback. I don't want to say that it's Mason yet, just out of denial, big completion to Deontay Johnson. They're now at the 50 with a, a minute and a half left. Tomlin at that point would probably tell Canada over the headset, we score, we're going to go for two, be ready. He'll say something like that. Um, my understanding is most coaches who aren't calling those plays won't be the one to call whatever. But they might say, I want I want to run off of the tackle. I want something up the middle. I want a QB sneak. They, they might get to that level and, and request whatever it is. They may have prepared for exactly that. They might have three plays that they are going to go over in those situations. And Mike is saying, we're going to prepare for three. And based on the situation, I'm going to give you one of them and go with that. It, it all depends. So that there's not one straight way to do any of it. But what I know is... Um, oftentimes coaches are hired based on their acumen on one side of the ball. And with that, uh, part of their salary is going to be dictated on the idea that they'll call plays. It, it really depends on the coach. It depends on their staff. So you, you want to have uh, a, a staff of veterans, a staff of people that you are prepared um, 
it, you know that you communicate well with, you trust, you know that they can do their job amid all of that chaos. And when you have that, you have more freedom, you have more flexibility to just give out a general command and trust that they're going to, to take care right. of the legwork on the, right. the ground level. So it, it is very circumstantial. Um, I can't say I know enough about what the Steelers are doing or what their sideline is now to say whether he should or should not be doing it. Uh, what I do know is that Mike Tomlin's been the head coach of an NFL team for a very long time. And there are guys 20 years his junior without a shred of the experience that he has that call plays. So uh, if they're doing it, I certainly think Tomlin can, can manage to do it. And I don't think that Tomlin's calling on the defensive side of the ball is what his kind of impacted them, certainly not this season. Let's move forward and let's jump into uh, T.J. Watt getting defensive player of the year. And let me read off the names uh, of 20 sack guys that he joins. And this is an impressive list here. Uh, most of these guys are, are in the Hall of Fame. So he joins Michael Strahan, of course, Mark Gastineau, Jared Allen, Justin Houston, Chris Dolman, Reggie White, Chris Aaron Dolman. Donald, Lawrence Taylor, and his brother, of course, J.J. Watt. How good of a season was it for T.J.? Where does it rank for you uh, in terms of all-time defensive seasons? For me, I guess in the last 10 years, um, I thought that Aaron Donalds, I believe it was his 2018 season when he had the 20 and a half sacks for an interior yeah. lineman, um, was probably the best defensive season that I've seen probably in the last 25 years. And I agree with you. I, I thought he should have been MVP. He was absolutely, absolutely. That's how good he was in 2018, uh, Penn Hills native. Uh, where, where does where does this season rank uh, for, for you in terms of T.J. Watt's 22-and-a-half uh, sack season defensive player of the year? Where does it rank for you uh, in you know, terms the, of maybe all-time great Steeler seasons, defensive seasons, or just where, where does it rank? Where do, where do you think about that season? Um, for me to, to put some context into it, uh, I would agree with you. I think Donald in 2018 was the best that I saw. Um, his brother's 20 sack season, JJ's 20 sack season was epic. Um, JJ, it, it, JJ and Donald, that, that I, one of those two, I think is probably the best. Um, the thing with TJ is he didn't get the full 16 games. And I know that we've talked about this and it's always going to be used as, as kind of an excuse. They had 18 weeks. He didn't play 16 games. Um, he flat out took over a, a couple games. They weren't all out four quarter assaults the way that we've seen, I think from, from TJ in the past, but the, the Seattle game, he was unblockable for two series and that one in the game. Um, it shouldn't have gotten as far as it did. You wish that, you know, maybe he had done more throughout the game to, to not have to go to overtime against that team. But um, it, he won the game for them late. We saw that. Um, his bad games seemed to be ones that he left due to injury or he was injured walking into. So the amazing thing for me with his season is when he was healthy, I don't think he had a bad game. Um, and he was flat out other world in, in a few of them. So I, I, I'd say this, and I, I'm biased, so I, I probably have no basis of this, but the best individual defensive player season that I saw was James Harrison in 2008. Yes, um, that's what I was I've had say. conversations with people who suggest, and, and perhaps fairly so, that Polamalu was better in 2008 than Harrison was. Maybe Harrison wasn't even the defensive player of the year that year. Um, some of that is the Super Bowl play. Some of it is a hangover effect from the best individual defensive game I ever saw, which was James Harrison in 2007 against the Ravens. Um, TJ Watt over three years is, in, in my opinion, hands down the best this generation of Steelers fans has ever seen. And I think, I think this might, uh, I don't know. He, he was outstanding just, last year too. Just go ahead and say it. He, he's on, uh, he's, I, he's in position to be quite possibly the best Steeler defensive player. I think to get to that level, he's on that trajectory. To, be, to be higher than mean Joe Green, he's going to have to do more than what he is. But right now, 
take any of them over three years. I, I don't, I don't think any of them can do what Watt has done. Uh, mean Joe won what one defensive player? Did he win two? I think he won two. Um, I'm not sure. I can look it up. I think it's probably fair to say, and voting was a lot different back then. But I, I, I want to call this out again because this is a really big deal. There are not many players in recent, this era, call it the 90s through now, there are not many players who have gotten votes for Defensive Player of the Year in three consecutive years. And T.J. Watt's going to be playing at age 28 next year. He could very, very easily do that again. He could very easily win it again. At that point, he's at his brother's level. And my opinion, his brother and Aaron Donald are the two best defensive players we've seen uh, since, since Reggie. You know, that that's, that's, it's amazing in an era that has seen an explosion of, of offensive uh, playmakers of money of injuries uh, to do something similar to what JJ Watt or Aaron Donald has done is absolutely remarkable. And TJ is at that level now. And it's, uh, it's weird. You know, you still kind of look at him as, you know, he's the young guy, he's the young buck growing into this defense, but uh, he's he's a remarkable player, and we saw it um, in a year that he, frankly, wasn't 100% for a, a good chunk of it. We saw him absolutely destroy whatever they threw at him, and you hope to get another two, three years of his peak prime before the, the large amount of snaps that he had early in his career uh, are going to start mounting up for him, the back end of his contract. You, you've, I think it's a safe bet to say – if he can avoid major injury the next two years, you're getting a, a, a Hall of Fame level player out of that. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree. I mean, he's his impact. He's impacted the game tremendously, and um, he's just an incredible draft pick. Uh, the value that they got out of that pick is just absolutely incredible. And you are correct. Joe Green did win uh, Defensive Player of the Year two times in 1972 and 1974. But before we jump into the main topic of the show. And it's a good discussion before we get there. Sorry about that, Steelers freak. It's taking a little bit of time for us to get into the topics. But, you know, everything was Steeler-related. So hopefully you guys enjoyed the discussion. And the main topic of the show is going to be the Steelers must improve these offensive numbers in 2022 to be more successful. Any thoughts on the Hall of Fame class? And let me read it out for you. I think I still have it here. Tony Baselli. Leroy Butler, Sam Mills, Richard Seymour, Bryant Young, Cliff Branch, Art McNally, and Dick Vermeil. One thing I'll say is I thought Tony Baselli, along with Ogden, um, Orlando Pace, and uh, Munoz, uh, probably the best tackle. One of the be- he, he's in that group of best tackles that I've seen that I can really remember. And I will say this: I thought Richard Seymour uh, was one of the most versatile. Um, defensive lineman that I had seen. And uh, I know Jeff Hardings did not like Richard Seymour because Nobody Jeff Hardings Richard used to Seymour. <laughs> Richard used to go to work on the Steelers offensive line. They used to put him at, you know, one He's technique, three technique, five beast. technique, both sides of the offensive line. I mean, he used to go to work on the Steelers offensive line. Uh, outstanding player out of the SEC. Um, so I'm glad to see Richard Seymour although he was a hated Patriot, uh, make the Hall of Fame. Any quick comments on that class? Anything stand out? I'm a big Hall of Fame dork. I'll try to keep it as quick as possible. Uh, One biggest takeaway is I'm utterly shocked with a few of these, but I will say uh, I have been on the Baselli bandwagon for a long time. I think it's great. Um, Injuries cut down greatness. We see it all the time. Baselli was an absolute force of nature, and he would have been up there. Uh, with any of of the top guys, uh, Joe Thomas was at least on Baselli's level. Um, it, Jonathan Ogden, I think, might be the best I ever saw. Walter Jones is absolutely up there. Baselli uh, yeah, yeah. was right yeah. there with those guys, um, in, in my opinion. Uh, what we've seen from the late as far as safeties go, I think Roy Butler belongs there uh, as much as Paul Amalo and Ed Reed does. Um, you, you know, it's certainly more than than uh, Lynch. I, another mistake that they, John Lynch should not have been in the hall of fame before Leroy Butler was in the end. I'll just cool my jets with that and just say, look, Butler's there. He belongs there. That's good. Uh, Seymour. I, my opinion was one of the best defensive players of his era. Um, the fact that he was utterly dominant snap to snap 
is is secondary to the fact that he's one of the most versatile defensive linemen that we saw in an era that didn't prize versatility the way that it does today. Cam Hayward is a modern Richard Seymour. And Cam Hayward, yeah. in my opinion now, and I, believe me, I, I will dedicate my working career to this, Richard Seymour getting in the Hall of Fame gives Cam Hayward a shot at the Hall of Fame. In my opinion, Cam Hayward belongs in the Hall of Fame. Um, won't be first ballot. It's going to take a lot of work, but I I really, really hope the Steelers get their SHIT together. And, and if they were able to win one with Hayward on the roster, that would only help. Um, he belongs there, in my opinion. Should have been an all-decade player. Um, we'll get into that another time. Bryant Young is really interesting. Um, it, very, very unusual selection to the average fan. But the weird thing with Bryant Young is you ask any player about him, they'll tell you how good he was. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I felt. And, be, and being out here um, in the Bay Area, you know, I, I you know, Bryant Young was lauded in this area for, for, for how good him. he was. They absolutely. I mean, he was lauded out him. here. His opponents feared him. Um, it, it's It's surprising. It's surprising. I was surprised he was a finalist, to be honest with you. I was I surprised Sam Mills got in. The Hall of Fame. Um, I, Sam I Mills, surprised Sam Mills got in. But it, Sam Mills, great story. Uh, I love the legacy. I love him as a football player. I love him as a competitor. you have any idea how many players you need to let in the Hall of Fame now if you're going to let Sam Mills in? Uh, Sam lot. Mills over Patrick Willis is absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Uh, Sam Mills over Zach Thomas is absolutely ridiculous. I don't think... Zach Thomas even really fully belongs in the Hall of Fame. Um, what about what about London Fletcher? London Fletcher outproduced yeah. Sam Mills in any comparable statistic except for viral sayings. If anything, London Fletcher is not in the Hall of Fame if Sam Mills is because London Fletcher was the true workman. He went about his way. He didn't draw attention to himself. It's not that he wasn't a leader. He just wasn't the big rah-rah kind of guy that, that that Mills was. And I love Sam Mills. I don't think any football guy doesn't love Sam Mills. Hall of Fame? I, I don't see it, Lance. I don't see it. Senior yeah. Ducky, Cliff Branch. Um, okay. Yeah, Cliff definitely. I, I like Cliff. I like I, I mean, Cliff's I old school it. Raider guy. Um, uh, I mean, same Cliff was argument. a great player back then. I, I don't – another story for another day. This is really – Cliff Branch is today, this is how I'll hook it, Lance. Cliff Branch is today what Heinz Ward might be in 25 years. If Heinz Ward's going to get in the Hall of Fame, it's going to be as a senior inductee. It's not going yes, to be I agree. Uh, as a vote. And to be honest with you, I would have said the same thing about Sam Mills and Brian Young. So uh, maybe something happened there. I just I felt the regular panel of voters would not be able to compare these guys well to a current uh, and widely accepted Hall of Famer. I don't think that we see that. Uh, Cliff Branch, senior inductee, fine. Um, I think very comparable in an impact sense to Heinz Ward. Not the best of his generation, not even among the best, really, but a very solid producer, a notable player uh, who had something exceptional that uh, players around deep him speed, didn't do quite as well. He was one of the first deep guys we saw have a deep lot of speed, success. Baby. And, he was, and he was good like that. Um, okay. Uh, the, the, the coach inductee, wow, they opened the floodgates for coaches. Uh, Dick Vermeil getting the Hall of Fame. Okay. <laughs> I, I like, I like, let, let, let's keep it moving. Okay. Let's keep it moving with that. And by the way, I a lot do of like coaches Dick are getting Vermeil. in the Hall of Fame now. Start I like Dick heavy Vermeil I like Dick Vermeil wines. He has a nice little winery out in Napa. He has a nice little tasting room Good. that my wife great, and great I guy. enjoy. <laughs> so like so he, has, he has great Cabernet. <laughs> but let's jump into the topic of the show, and that's the Steelers must improve these offensive numbers in 2022. And we're going to just go through a list of them. And as I go through them, Neil, write down – what you think are the most important numbers that they need to improve on. And what I like to do, listeners, is when we get to the playoffs and you get to the Super Bowl, I like to tally up an offensive comparison sheet to the playoff teams. And so the Steelers are one of those teams this year. And so I, I, I like to take a look at, you know, just a comparison across the board to see how the Steelers compare 
in certain numbers. I do it typically on both sides of the ball on defense as well, but I try to concentrate on the offensive side of the ball because, you know, shoot me. I'm getting ready to say it. Offense wins championships, but balanced teams win championships as well. But offense wins championships. You got to be able to score the football. I mean, you got to be able to score and score at a decent clip. So let's run through some of these stats. I'm going to start with third down (coughs) conversion rate. When you look at the playoff teams, they rank one through 14 respectively. Um, No, excuse me. When you look at the playoff teams, the lowest ranking team on third down conversions was the Raiders at 22. Um, the Steelers ranked at 17. But but, but let, me, let me just shift reels. Let me do it this way. Here are some of the stats that I looked at. Third down percentage, red zone percentage, QB ranking, uh, obviously points per game, yards per point, yards per play, adjusted sack rate, points per play, yards per attempt and big passing plays and passing plays of 20 yards or more. So let me give you where the Steelers rank in each of those. In terms of third down conversions, the Steelers ranked 17 overall in the NFL amongst playoff teams. They rank 13th in terms of red zone percentage. They rank 22nd overall in the NFL Amongst playoff teams, they ranked 13. In terms of quarterback rating, Ben's quarterback rating was 87.2, which was 22nd in the NFL. It was 13th ranked amongst playoff quarterbacks. Points per game, the Steelers were 20.2 for the year. The NFL rank was 21st. The rank in the playoff teams amongst playoff teams was 14th. So they were the lowest scoring team, and their quarterback had the lowest excuse me, the second lowest quarterback rating. Let's get back to those. In terms of yards per point, the Steelers, it took the Steelers getting, they had to gain 14, excuse me, 15.4 yards to get a point, which ranked 19th in the NFL, 13th amongst playoff teams. Yards per play, the Steelers were 28th in the NFL, only averaging 4.8, which was last amongst playoff teams. I'm going to skip past adjusted sack rate, Points per play, um, they averaged uh, 0.30 points per play, which was 25th in the National Football League. It was 14th amongst playoff teams. And that coincides with the fact that they scored only 20 points per game this year. In terms of yards per attempt, the Steelers averaged six yards per attempt, which was ranked 30th in the National Football League, 14th amongst playoff teams. In terms of passing pays of 20 yards or more, they have 41 on a year, which was 27th in the National Football League. They rank 13th overall amongst playoff teams. When you average all those metrics together, the Steelers' average was 22nd, and their playoff average amongst all those numbers was 13. So overwhelmingly, the Steelers were the worst offensive team in the playoffs. So looking at these numbers, third down percentage, red zone percentage, quarterback rating, points per game, yards per point, yards per play, adjusted sack rate, points per play, yards per attempt, and passing plays of 20 yards or more, rank your top three most important. For me, what it really comes down to is your ability to make explosive plays down the field. If we're defining that as 20 plus yards, that's number one for me. Um, and it, it clearly shows the fact this is what I had looked up uh, as far as the passing game goes. Uh, 42 out of 745, it's 6%, which was 30th in the league. It seems like 42 over 18 games is more of an accident than anything else. Uh, rushing, not a whole lot different, just a little bit more common because they weren't able to run as much. Um, 42 explosive plays out of 430, that's 10%. That was 25th in the league, so a little step up there. Put all of it together, uh, there was 6% of all of their plays were of the explosive variety, which typically is defined as 10 yards or more rushing and 20 yards or more passing. 
Um, there were only two teams in the NFL that were worse than them overall. That was the uh, Houston Texans and the New York Giants. Now, if being at or around the same level as the Texans or the Giants uh, seems like a good thing to you, I'm not sure what you're watching. But to me, it, it's as clear as day. They can't, <clears throat> can't make plays down the field. If you're not able to do that, you are going to play 1984-style football, which pre-Bill Walsh, that's kind of, I guess, the, the pinnacle of the rise of Bill Walsh, but uh, call it 1980 then. If you have to run 30 times a game at 3.4 yards pop in order to control and win by a field goal, okay. But nowadays, the other side of the ball, you almost have to expect them to score 27+. plus. You're not doing that if you aren't moving the ball quickly and efficiently down the field. The Steelers absolutely cannot do that for a variety of reasons, things that we have highlighted uh, throughout the course of the year. They don't have dudes, okay? They just don't. I know that we love Juju. We love the Steelers receivers, and they're all really good, and we think this is the coordinator's fault. These guys are not difference makers. They're just not. I really – like, you know, another piece of news, Lance, we didn't get into – Steelers moved on from their wide receivers coach. I don't think that's a coincidence either. I think the fact that Chase Claypool was worse his second year than he was in his first is problematic. He's your playmaker, and he didn't make any plays. Deontay Johnson is a good possession receiver. He's a great technical receiver. I have a lot of that as as a purist. I, I know the wide receiver position probably better than I know others, and what you see from Deontay Johnson is a highly skilled player but he's not breaking away from guys deep down the field. He's not going to make big plays unless he's set up to do that. And to some degree, he probably shouldn't be. He's a, a guard, uh, a, he's a chain stretching kind of guy. You can get him the ball a lot, you're going to have production, but he's not a big time playmaker. They need a big time playmaking receiver. They need more out of their tight ends as a whole. Hopefully, they get to a point where they're not running screen passes with Zach Gentry anymore for three yard gains. Everything that the Steelers did was to promote the idea that they are a ball control offense because they couldn't make plays down the field. They knew that they couldn't. They had to plan around that. I guarantee you priority number one for them this offseason is to find guys that can help them make explosive plays in either the, the running game, but more preferably the passing game. Yeah, when I look at this, and I, and I hate when we um, just agree hook and step, but I think – when you look at these to. numbers, <laughs> I mean, awful. when you, they're really I mean, bad. I mean, when you look at these numbers, I mean, when you're 30th in the National Football League in yards per attempt, and when you look at the playoff teams, I mean, the Titans were eighth in yards per attempt, the Chiefs five, fifth, the Bills eighth, Bengals first, uh, the Raiders fifth, the Patriots fourth, the Packers fourth, uh, the Bucks sixth, the Cowboys they tied for fourth. The Rams were second. I mean, you look at the Super Bowl playoff. You see, look at the Super Bowl participants. I mean, the Bengals and the Rams are first and third. I mean, and the one thing, and the Cards were fourth, 49ers second, even the Eagles were sixth. And the one thing you see every year when I do these stats is the same thing plays out every year. Yards per attempt, teams that are high in yards per attempt and big passing plays are teams that make the playoffs and go deep in the playoffs because – what that does is that coincides with points per game. And it's a direct correlation because if you look at the points per game, I mean, you know, the Titans average 24, Chiefs 29, Bills 29, Bengals 27. Uh, the Raiders average 21.8, uh, but they weren't a really good team. Uh, the Patriots average 27. I mean, the Packers 25, the Bucks almost 30, Cowboys 30, Rams 27, Cards 25. If you're not getting explosive plays in the passing game, you're not going to score a bunch of points. And I didn't even look at differential because I would bet that each of these playoff teams, when you're looking at point differential, probably it's probably plus, I'm going to guess five and a half or greater. Um, Bengals might be a little bit lower because they're they're the rare Super Bowl team that has seven losses in the Super Bowl. So typically, you never have a team with seven losses in the Super Bowl. I mean, that's just really rare, particularly because it was a 16-game schedule, and it's hard to make the playoffs at nine and seven. So the Bengals are, are kind of rare in that regard. But 
typically the point differential is a, at least a touchdown or more. And that's that golden area. If you're seven to 10 in point differential, you're probably going to win a Super Bowl. And that's largely because you're getting explosive plays in the passing game. And, and, and that's more important. Typically, I think a lot of fans would look at third down percentage and red zone percentage. But if you're getting big plays in the passing game, you're not in the red zone and you don't have a lot of third downs that you have to convert. You know, third down percentage conversion is very important for teams that have to possess the ball and have to have long drives. But if you're an explosive team, Hell, you're not going to get 14 third down attempts in a game. You'll get like 10. You'll convert six. Why did you only get 10? Because you threw it over somebody's head multiple times and you didn't even get in the third down. You got, you got, you know, you got points. And so, and I would love, and I would love for the NFL to come up with a nice stat in terms of like, what's the percentage of times that you don't like get into a third down? Like, you know, where they start measuring, like the percentage of times you get into a third down situation. And I'll guarantee you teams that don't get into a lot of third downs are probably these teams that have gone to the playoffs when they get in third down. They're good, obviously, because they want to possess the ball, but they want to throw it over your head. They want to throw it over your head and let Tyreek Hill run for like 70 with open space. And they have a six play drive and they score a touchdown. So, You know, the Steelers clearly, and, you know, they have to improve in the passing game. Is there one number? Because I'm looking in the live chat, and Grayson said, wow, six yards per attempt. Is there one number of those numbers that I read or anything that you looked up on the offensive side of football that just strikes you as really surprising? For me, it's the yards per play. I mean, the yards per play, is just absolutely unreal. 4.8 yards per play. I mean, that that's almost that's like that's laughable. Like that's laughable in the National Football League. That stood out to me that as wow. I mean, this this is a bad unit. Honestly, if if we're going to use the word surprise here literally, the biggest surprise to me is nine wins. They have <laughs> easily one of the worst offenses in the NFL. And this is an offense-driven league. Um, it's not everything. I, I will point this out. You know who led the league in, in explosive uh, plays this year? The Cleveland Browns. You saw what happened with them. Very much a boom or bust team that fell apart at, at midseason and never got back on track. But the Steelers didn't make plays all year long. The fact they were able to win nine games is a, a complete shock. That is what should not have happened, uh, all things considered. But – Nothing else, nothing the Steelers finished with at the end of the year surprises me at all. And Lance, you know this. I've been yelling about this since day one of last offseason. This offense is not going to be good. They just aren't. There's nothing they're going to be able to bring in uh, in the situation that they're in that's going to improve them dramatically offensively. And that's what they need right now if they're going to do it again. And I'm not sure where we sit right now. It's going to be all that much different. I think there are, there are reasons to think maybe they'll improve uh, a bit, but it, it, are we going to be celebrating and toasting their their success if all of a sudden they go from six yards a pass to six point four? Because that's the level of improvement I feel that they're capable of doing. But I'm not sure if that's not just deck chairs on the Titanic at this point. You know, they're not going to have the personnel that they'll need to really make explosive plays down the field. Yeah, let's think about it this way. And and, and, and with that Brown stat, I know you don't have the number in front of you. I'm interested yeah, to hear how many of those explosive plays were rushing plays. I'm, I'm um, going to guess with the Browns, right, half that of number. them. Hold on. Yeah, I'm going to guess with the half of them. Very well could Browns, be. But it was probably half. Because the, the to point, your point, well, to your point, Neil, about creating explosive plays in the passing game of 20 yards or more. The Steelers have 41 of those plays. The Buccaneers had 76. And one interesting thing um, in terms of Aaron Rodgers, of course, won the two-time MVP. When you look at some of the offensive numbers and you compare the Bucs offense against the Packers, 
wow, Brady had a phenomenal year because in a lot of numbers, the Bucks' offense was absolutely better than the Packers' offense, which I found interesting because of the overwhelming uh, support that it was a foregone conclusion that Aaron Rodgers was going to win the MVP. But that that that's an aside. So let, let's look at it this way, Neil. So you have hey, an offense. Just jump in, in really quick. You're, you are okay. dead on correct about Cleveland. I didn't even notice this at first. Shame on me. Yes. But Cleveland, 81 explosive plays in the rushing game. Indianapolis, 72. Yes. Yeah, Passing, that makes though, sense. Cleveland, uh, shoot, uh, 47. What did I say Pittsburgh had? 45? 42 40. for Pittsburgh. 47 okay. Okay. for Cleveland. And Indianapolis, just to, to round it out, had 42 as well. So you see the value of being able to throw the ball versus, uh, comparatively speaking, yes. uh, your overall offense. But at the very least, those two teams were reasonably competitive at different times because they had explosive plays. Pittsburgh didn't have any of them at all, really. You know, of course, it's not A plus B equals C. I mean, this isn't perfect math. This is football. I mean, so, of course, there's other things when we're talking about explosive plays that will factor in to next year for the Steelers being more successful. But when you look at a gap between 41 and 76, I mean, you're looking at a gap of 35, almost double the explosive plays in the passing game. I mean, that that's I mean, you know, for the Steelers to improve their chances to win and, and you're and you got to juxtapose it against. They're going up against a team that is playing in the Super Bowl tomorrow who got, if I could find their number here, uh, I mean, you're talking about they're, they're going up against a Cincinnati Bengal team that was number one in yards per attempt at 8.5 and who generated 63 explosive plays in the passing game, an additional 22. So, you know, the Steelers need to get, and let's just say this the explosive passing plays doesn't change, the numbers don't change, just to get in that top, you know, 10 range, you know, they're going to have to generate probably an additional 25 explosive plays in the passing game. And so, you know, part of getting to that passing protection will have to improve. But, you'll, you know, hopefully they'll have a quarterback this year. I don't know who the starter is going to be that can actually attack downfield. But we can see they need some guys. They need some guys. And I love the way you say it. It's not just scheme, but they need some guys. I mean, you're talking about yards per attempt, six yards? Bengals, 8.5? I mean, that's, that, that the Rams, 8.2? I mean, they're not even in the stratosphere. So when we talk about numbers that must improve in 2022, clearly it's yards per attempt and it's a creating explosive plays in the passing game. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how they solve that. And I think when you look at those numbers, it's going to be clear that getting a player that can stretch the field to add to this group is going to factor into it. Like, because I, they see the numbers like we see the numbers. And you can't drive the ball 14, 15 plays consistently to score points. I mean, you really have to, to create, uh, you know, play explosive plays in the passing game. Let me just ask, ask it to you from this perspective, Neil. When a staff sees this number, when Matt Canada and, and Mike Tomlin see this number, what do you think goes through their head? What what do they say? How do they get at this? Because I think that, you know, they know more about football than we do, and they know that this is a problem, and they know that this is something that they have to improve. How do they go about trying to improve it or to address it uh, in terms of their offense for next year? I'm going to say this. I'm going to combine it with a, a, a comment that was made uh, earlier. Um, first off, the, the greatest narrative – that is supported by nothing tangible outside of, of a, a one team perspective is the idea that throwing the ball short of the first down marker is somehow avoided by every team in the league. The best offenses don't ever do that. This is a catch and run league, high percentage throws to playmakers in space. 
That's what they're looking to do. This is why the average height of an NFL wide receiver, certainly at the all pro level, has gone down like four inches. They are getting okay. the ball to very short, fast, uh, it, 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 you know, short space, open field runners. Antonio Brown is an excellent example of this. He was lethal after the catch. The Steelers passing game, as much as everyone wants to, to praise Ben Roethlisberger and talk about his arm and everything like that, their numbers were bolstered by the fact that Brown could catch a ball and take it seven yards from anywhere on the field, at least. And he would break some 40 or 50 yards pretty consistently. Probably the best open field runner of his era. They, the NFL is trying to find guys like that because the answer to not running the ball is throwing it complete 80% of the time to guys that can run. You are eliminating the, the defensive line yes. if you do that. You want to play against the, the secondary when it comes to tackling. So you throw the ball in a screen situation, which everyone destroyed Todd Haley for calling all the time. And it wasn't simply just a matter of Ben looking over and seeing that there's two defensive backs versus three receivers in space to block for Antonio Brown. It, it's simply a, a question of how can you get the ball to a talented runner in space? That's what they're doing. At the same time, too, if you don't have the guy open 11 yards down the field, one yard past the first down sticks, complete it to a guy underneath who has a chance to run for it. They're trying to complete the pass, okay? That's why you – here, look it up. I, I don't know if you have this in front of you, Lance. Ben Roethlisberger's completion percentage on third down is probably pretty close to his normal completion percentage. He completed yeah. passes. Yeah, They just didn't make it to the sticks. Everyone blames the depth of the route. It's not. It, it's a design play. They want to do that. Obviously, it doesn't work. It, it, it's a question, though, of the skill of your receivers and, to, to some degree, what you're doing to get them open underneath. Everyone talks about, um, it, we, we hear it all the time, the genius of Sean McVay, the genius of Kyle Shanahan. Really, what those guys are doing is finding ways to pass the ball short and get guys in space uh, and, and let them do their thing. Debo Samuel is one of the best offensive players in the game. He doesn't run 14-yard routes. He just averages 14 yards a catch because they put him in space, and he's a great open field runner. He's also a really strong guy who's hard to take down on, on one tackle alone. You get a guy like that up against defensive backs, he's going to win. So really, it, to me, this is a question, yes, to some degree, your scheme, but the scheme the Steelers had is largely because they didn't have any other options. They couldn't get the ball deep down the field because they don't have an offensive line that can protect. They don't have a quarterback that can throw. And they don't have receivers that can win at that, that level of the field. What they needed to do was complete the pass and try to move upfield, try to outrun people to the edge, uh, pick up yards after the catch. That's what they've tried to do the last two seasons. It hasn't worked. They need to find guys that can do that and then scheme them up in a way that they're going to be more successful. They want to complete passes, okay? At the end of the day, it's a completions league. The more yards they can get easily, in other words, the closest resemblance to a run game is a high percentage passing game. That's what the Steelers have tried to do. So you put all that together, it's really that their athletes aren't especially explosive, they're not great in space, and they're not putting them into great positions. And some of that is, again, due to the fact they don't have difference-making personnel. They don't have explosive speed anywhere on the field they don't have great athleticism anywhere on the field with the exception of maybe claypool if he can figure it out but after two seasons now i'm not confident that'll happen we'll see how they address this but i guarantee you they're going to find a playmaker in free agency or the draft they're going to bring him in and they're going to find ways to get the ball to that player in space and let them create more than what they've been able to Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what they do uh, moving forward. And one thing I'll do uh, before we conclude this show is I will put the link uh, to this spreadsheet that we've compiled. Uh, I'm sorry, Grayson, it was a lot of numbers, but that's the benefit of being able to do a podcast. I mean, I kind of knew where we were going to get to, but I didn't want to lead the witness and Neil Kulong to the conclusion that I thought he was going to get to when we look at it, because I mean, it's pretty clear as day. I mean, the Steelers lacked explosive plays in their offense. And when you, when you lack explosive plays, it becomes, it becomes the onus on execution increases that much more. 
And when you have a young offensive line, it just makes it more difficult to to execute successfully. I mean, Tom Brady and the Patriots made a living scoring a zillion points with a well-coordinated and well-structured short passing game. They had all of it, though. They had all of it, though. Like, they had all of it. They could morph into anything. So, Mm -hmm. with that being said, before we get out of here, Neil, give me your Super Bowl prediction. Um. People are going to hate this. I've, I've gone over it a bunch of different ways. I've talked to a lot of people. Uh, Cincinnati is going to win this game. Zach um, Taylor. Zach Taylor's number one. Side story to, to Zach Taylor and Zach other Taylor. predictions of teams that I've put in writing before. <laughs> oh, so um, let me hear this. Let me hear this. I, I, so, well, I, I'll, I'll boil it down very quickly. A, a friend of my brother's, um, I, I was working at the paper in, in Iowa at this point, Um he was passing through town. I met up with him for dinner and we were, they were, they were baseball guys. We were talking baseball and I, I forget what the conversation was exactly, but the point that I was making was emphatic. Whatever this was has as much a chance as the Florida Marlins do of winning the world series and the Florida Marlins won the world series. Um, 90% of the conversation I've had with that guy since then. And that was shit, 17 years ago. Uh, has been about the fact he asked me who I'm picking for the World Series. Um, who do I need to put my money on? Who's the worst team in your mind in the league? So it, it, to suggest now that Zach Taylor, who's on the verge of winning a Super Bowl, is being picked by me uh, as the, the soon-to-be Super Bowl winning head coach is a bit crazy, I understand. More of this comes down to the fact that the the weekend before several Super Bowls over the last 10 years, if I've been on the radio, if I've been writing it, we have always, always disregarded the team that's playing better defense or elite defense yes. versus yes. the team that we perceive to be great offensively. Yes, yes. Right now, it is abundantly clear which side that favors. And I'm not betting against it. I went I, I I'm not going to say the name of it. There was a, a a national radio host who ridiculed me for picking uh, the the Broncos over Cam Newton's Panthers because the Panthers were unstoppable. They were the 15-1 team with the MVP. They had the the unstoppable offense. Denver's just playing too good good defensively. Watch. Well, that guy, You're gonna that see guy was crazy. Denver beat yeah. the Patriots. They were going to win. <laughs> Denver completely shut Carolina down. I picked Seattle over Peyton's Broncos, who was that was statistically the best offense in the history of the NFL. Seattle beat the ever-loving piss out of that team. That was never competitive, not even remotely competitive. Seattle's still scoring on them right now, and Denver can't move the ball. It, it Defense, it, I, I hate defense wins championships more than I hate offense wins championships. It, it's not any one thing at any time. It's a matchups game. It comes down between yeah. two teams. I picked the Rams to win the Super Bowl this year, and I'm picking De- uh, Cincinnati to win this game. The main reason is – Matt Stafford did not do what I thought that he would. He had the opportunity many times. He's left a lot on the field. They have not been the offense you think that they would be. They're not a balanced offense, and I think Cincinnati sees that. Cincinnati did in the second half exactly what the Rams are built to do against a team, and I think Cincinnati is going to shut them down because of that. They can drop guys into coverage and still get pressure on the quarterback I don't think Stafford is otherworldly. I don't think the Rams should be in the game. I think Tampa Bay comes back and wins that game if they cover Cooper Cup deep, which they should have in the situation that they had against in, in the divisional. I don't think the Rams are all that good of a team. I don't think the Bengals are all that good of a team. I don't even think I would pick the Bengals to win the AFC North next year, just flat out. I think they're going to have to compete for that. They're not top to bottom a great football team, but they have the right personnel and the right matchups uh, against Los Angeles to play a low-scoring game and come out on top. 1916 Bengals. Well, I'm gonna pick the Rams um, because, uh, but but I, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if the Bengals won. I think if I went to sleep and woke up, um, I think the key for the Bengals to win um, is Joe Mixon and their ability to run the football. Agree um, and con- and control. Uh, the Rams defensive line. So if you go to sleep and wake up and Joe Mixon has 20 plus carries, 
Cincinnati. I, won I, the game. I think they use them in the passing game. I think they're going to use them short. They're they're going to get the ball out of Burrow's hand. They're going to nullify uh, the pass rush that you get from the Rams. Move him out laterally. I think Mixon did a great job of that against um, Kansas City in the second half. They got him going. He was the reason. You know, not to go on a huge rant about this, but the 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 gross overpraise that Joe Burrow is getting for his performances in the last two weeks. Pretty ridiculous, <clears throat> pretty ridiculous to me for, <clears throat> in my opinion, a team that defensively six of the eight quarters, they completely dominated their opponent. All of let the me Tennessee say this. game. Let me say the second this, half listeners. of the Kansas City game. We've forgotten this. this completely because of the God that is Joe Burrow. It's ridiculous. Let, let me say this, listeners. For Neil to say this about Joe Burrow is significant. Like mark the tape <laughs> one hour and five minutes because Neil – has probably mm-hmm. been on the Joe Burrow bandwagon yep. like two years ago. Like not That's even what this I got year. Hot. When it came like, down to like, AFC North like, quarterbacks, he was sold on Lamar Jackson. I told him, just watch. You're going to see Joe Burrow. <laughs> yes, up this yes. Year. And Joe yes. Burrow didn't even do everything I thought he would do this year. And he's not playing exceptionally well in the playoffs. He's a good quarterback right now. Stafford is a better quarterback. Burrow does the things he needs to do. But Cincinnati just has a better matchup against this team in one game with two weeks to prepare. Their defense is playing too well. Burrow will do enough, but they're not going to score a ton. And the Bengals can keep that scoring down. I think the game will be low scoring. I would take the under. I'm going to take the Rams. Um, I like McVay in the coaching matchup. I think McVay will learn from, you know, his previous debacle in the Super Bowl. Um, I like the Rams defensive side of football, at least that, that front against the Bengals offensive line. I think that's going to be interesting. It's hard for me to pick the Bengals. I give the Bengals a lot of credit because they came back in Kansas city and played a, a well of a second half uh, to win that game. Um, I was just really concerned about what I saw in the first half as well. Like, wow, they were just giving it up on offense. I think it's going to be a competitive game, but um I'm going to go Rams. I'm going to go Rams. There was one thing in the show that I wanted to talk about that I missed and that I did not talk about, but we'll talk about that on next week's show. want to thank everybody for chiming in. Show went a little bit long, but it's Super Bowl weekend. Hope you guys enjoy the Super Bowl. Have fun. The halftime show is going to be, oh, my goodness, that's going to be epic. That's what I'm looking forward to. I have not watched or listened to any Super Bowl breakdown because I am not excited by a Rams-Bengals matchup. Not, not at all. Could I, I don't want to watch light blue, gold, orange, and black all on the same football field at the same time. That's horrible. Um, Impressive. And I was, I was just geeked about seeing a Chiefs-Rams matchup where we might see 75 to 73 as the final score. <laughs> I was just all for that business. Um, so I'm not excited about this Super Bowl, but I am going to pick the Rams and double eight said Lance Jinx the Rams. And actually, I am going to pick my mom as the winner because she will be happy that this game is over so her community can go back to being normal. She is absolutely tired <laughs> of football <laughs> for the last 35 weeks. She's like, man, it's been football for almost six seven months straight but let me get out of here thank you guys for chiming into the show thank you neil as always and as always tune in tell a friend and subscribe one two three fake smile